It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. Now we've got a special announcement today. Our show is now available to stream and subscribe to on Stitcher for Android users. So check it out. My name is Kay Wenigal and today I'm joined by my co-host Kira Rundle. Hey Kay, nice to be here. And Michael Steindl. Hi everyone. Given the long-term thinking of politics, oh, long-term, what am I talking about? Short-term thinking <laughs> of politics, it's comforting to know that someone in the public service is planning on a 30-year time frame. That's where Infrastructure Victoria comes in Australia's transport sector, the second largest sector in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, and is experiencing the highest emissions growth rate of any sector in the Australian economy. So limiting emissions from the transport sector is a critical part of our transition to zero carbon economy. Last year, Infrastructure Victoria examined a large range of possible futures for the introduction of driverless and zero emissions vehicles to Victoria. Dr Alison Stewart, who led the study to provide advice to the Victorian government, joined BZE Radio in June to explain the scenarios and the factors being considered. Since then, Infrastructure Victoria has published their final report and recommendations in a report called Advice on Automated and Zero Emissions Vehicles, October 2018. Alison is here today again with us to provide the latest information on the project. Welcome, Alison. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good to see you again. You too. So, Alison, let's go back just quickly and briefly to revisit your terms of reference for this project. Sure. So uh, Infrastructure Victoria, as you said, is the government's independent advisor on matters related to infrastructure in the state. Uh, We have a few different responsibilities, one of which is developing a 30-year strategy for the state's infrastructure, another of which is to make sure that we provide advice upon request to the government on topics that they think are important to understand. The government came to us in October of 2017 and said, you know, we really want to understand exactly what's going to happen with the future of automated and zero emissions vehicles and what infrastructure we need to prepare in order to be ready for them. So we spent a year looking at a number of different scenarios to try and understand and provide that advice back to the government um, around exactly what needs to be done uh, in a number of different sectors from an infrastructure perspective. And who is the audience then for this report? Just the Victorian government? So the Victorian government is our primary uh, stakeholder that we're submitting this advice to. Um, But of course, everyone in Victoria uh, is affected by the future that we have. Um, And certainly, one thing that we did find with respect to these vehicles is that um, there is such a significant impact that we could see from them that we really all need to be thinking about what our future might look like with a combination of automated and zero emissions vehicles. Alison, the um, report sounds really exciting. If I've got it right, it states that the potential benefits of automated and zero emissions vehicles, and we need to clarify that we're talking about two different aspects there, they're compelling and wide-ranging 
and that this is the most comprehensive body of evidence in this area in Australia and probably the world. And I know you were just saying before we came in, you've just come back from a conference in the US and they have nothing like that. So yeah. Some of, the, some of the highlights, the congestion rates and the GHD reduction and so on. Yeah, so we've got some really good feedback from our colleagues overseas, and and certainly it seems that no one's looked at the impact of these vehicle types in quite such a coherent and cohesive manner across different industries. So we're really pleased to get that feedback. And, and congratulations for that too. Yeah, That's thank amazing. You. It is a brilliant report. Um, we're really hoping that we start to at least influence the debate in this area. There's a lot of people that are looking into this from a sector-specific area, but actually what's really important and one of the, the big things that we did find in our report is how important looking across different sectors is with these technologies. So transport and energy can't ignore each other anymore. This is really important that as we plan to go forward, that those sectors are working hand in hand to prepare for the future that we want for the state. So in terms of some of the overall benefits that we expect, we think that up to 91% of congestion could be reduced in some of these scenarios. That's phenomenal. It is a really amazing (laughs) outcome. Sorely needed around (laughs) Melbourne, let me say. I have been hearing often from someone near me how Melbourne's in gridlock for the last few years. (laughs) So we're reaching peak gridlock then. Uh, well, we would hope so. Now, of course, that's a very extreme scenario. So we'll, that, that assumes that we would get to an entirely shared fleet of vehicles that were all automated and all electric. Now, mm-hmm. of course, that's uh, probably a very long way in the future. But even when we see a fleet of vehicles that's actually mixed, so if we see 50% of vehicles that are actually the current vehicles that we see on our roads now, so petrol, diesel, driven by humans, etc., and 50% of the fleet moving to a shared automated electric future, that could still improve congestion by between 70 and 75%, which is a pretty compelling case for us to move into that transition future. We also expect that up to 25% of greenhouse gas emissions in the state could be reduced with this future. So that's the overall emissions in Victoria. That's right. And we assume that on the basis of the fact... Significant. And we assume that on the basis of the fact that these, you know, we're assuming these are zero emissions Mm -hmm. from the source. Mm -hmm. And so we'd be powering these off renewable energy. Which and, Victoria and is working very hard towards. Absolutely, that's mm-hmm. current government policy. Yes. And we'll come back to them, but there's health and reduction in accident benefits and so on too. Three quarters of a billion health benefits in best case. Annually, yes. Mm. Annually. Uh, as well as an overall benefit in terms of what we think the economy will likely respond to. So we think there could be um, up to $15 billion extra in the economy per year um, mm-hmm. going forward. And one more thing, more jobs, 11,000 new jobs. Where would they come from? So what we did is, um, in terms of our modelling, we said, well, what what would happen in terms of the impact on the transport sector? Of course, everyone's conscious that this could be a very significant change for people's jobs. But we think with that increase in the overall economy um, and the growth of the overall economy as a result of these technologies, we expect that to generate new jobs. Now, where exactly the jobs will be, of course, we'll need to determine in the future. And that transition is really important to plan for. But we do expect that there would be that increase in jobs coming out of this. And as I said, we're going to come back to this distinction between zero emission and automated vehicles. Can you clarify what those terms mean in your report? Sure. So automated vehicles are effectively driverless in our report. So this is the new technology, of course, that we're looking at in terms of you know, potentially not even having a steering wheel at some point. Now, how much those vehicles are restricted in terms of where they can operate will determine how automated those are. But we expect within this report, that driverless means effectively exactly that, driverless for the majority of the time that you would actually be driving them. Mm. So zero emissions vehicles, of course, just means that the cars themselves um, are either electric or hydrogen fuel cell. So we've looked at both of those technologies in our report. 
And we expect that these two technologies, while they don't need to emerge in parallel, are likely to do so from a time frame perspective. And you're saying that there's going to be a 91% reduction in congestion. What about accidents? So accidents are, are something that we really are very interested in understanding in terms of this. The current research that's out there suggests that up to 94% of accidents are caused by, in some way by human error. If we can reduce those accidents that are caused by human error, then that could make a really big mm -hmm. difference to the um, quality of our roads and to how the roads are operating in the future. Now, uh, one thing that we are conscious of, of course, is that most of the accidents that we have in Victoria are in regional and rural areas. So we need to understand how these technologies can help to support regional and rural Victoria, as well as just urban Melbourne, um, and that we're making sure that those road safety benefits are really translating into benefits for all Victorians going forward. Just before we leave this 91%, to, to clarify, that, that's, that's sort of a, a peak benefit if we've got a fully automated fleet. But your report is saying that for many scenarios, even with, say, 50% automation, you will still get substantial decreases in congestion because of this connectedness or platooning, as it's called? That's right. And connectedness is a really important assumption. So when you think about a connected vehicle, effectively what we're talking about is that the vehicles can talk to each other and can coordinate their action. So in theory, that means that they could drive closer together because they know what's going to happen. So if we think about how we drive now, we're quite reactive drivers. We see the vehicle in front of us put on their indicator and we respond. We see the traffic light change, we respond. If you knew the traffic light was going to change in 30 seconds, you could change your behavior earlier. You could mm -hmm. adapt it in such a way that we could actually overall operate our road networks much more efficiently. So overall, mm -hmm. we do see a significant improvement in congestion when we see that connected element come in. Now, automated vehicles are a prime candidate for connectedness, given that they have to be highly automated anyway. Mm. But there are a lot of benefits that could come from connectedness, even of current human-driven vehicles. So there are some trials that are happening right now around Australia to try and understand exactly what those benefits could be. So I want to go back to what you said a few minutes ago with the automated vehicles that could potentially not even have a steering wheel. How are stakeholders and people that you've talked to about this responding to that? Because that could potentially sound a little bit scary to someone who's never seen a car like that before. Losing all control, basically. It's an interesting transition point, and certainly one of the big questions in this area is that social license. Will people be comfortable getting into automated vehicles? And there's a number of surveys that are being done with people now in Victoria, in Australia, and around the world to understand that, that acceptance. Now, interestingly, when people actually get into these vehicles, even those that express a lot of concern before they get into them or are nervous about the idea of it, a lot of them actually find that it's not really that different, surprisingly. So if you think about, for example, the La Trobe University autonomous trial that happened, they found when they looked at the results of the survey that they did before people got onto the automated bus and after, that people actually found, you know, at the end of the day, it's actually a bus. Just because it doesn't have a driver doesn't really change that experience significantly. Mm -hmm. And it's like that with planes nowadays too. They're pretty automated, aren't mm -hmm. they? Exactly. And I've found with my car, my electric vehicle, it does its own reversing into car spots so much better than I do. <laughs> it's a bit scary at first, but didn't take me that long to get used to it. And a lot of those lower level um, elements of automation are coming into our vehicles now. So things like cruise control is a level of automation. Mm. Lane keeping assist is another level of automation. And a lot of people are actually starting to respond positively to those kinds of things. Or lane departure warning where your car beeps if you start to drift outside your mm. lane. Some of those really basic levels of automation could make a significant difference to road safety and could help to prevent a lot of accidents on our roads yeah. and help to introduce people to the idea of mm -hmm. that full automation concept in the future. 
Which actually brings us to some of the other aspects of your report, the investments needed. One of them is in a consistency in road marking and road signs for exactly that reason. And I think your report said this isn't a really big issue. They're building the cars to cope with what we've got and not a lot of investment is needed there. But you do flag a major investment needed in energy. Can you talk to us about that? Absolutely. So um, just on the line marking, you know, that was one thing we heard consistently. So just having really clear line marking, having signs that are easy and clear to read and having good basic road maintenance. So without potholes and things like that are kind of three of the basic things that these automated vehicles respond well to. Mm -hmm. We expect that as the technology evolves, they'll probably become less concerned about those kinds of things. But it's still important that we think about that going Mm -hmm. forward. So that was, I think the investment was $2.2 billion over that period, for the energy. Uh, period of time for the energy mm. costs. For energy. We upgrades. expect that the um, the upgrades to line markings could be in the order of $250 million, but we think that given the current road maintenance approach, that if we have a, uh, a little bit more clarity on exactly mm. what quality of line markings will be best, and that's something that Austroads is looking into right now for these vehicles, mm. that we can start to plan that into our road maintenance budgets going forward. From the energy investment perspective, as you say, Kay, it is that $2.2 billion at a minimum. So what, we, what we're looking at here is if we make the assumption that these vehicles are going to be powered off the grid and that because they're zero emissions vehicles, they need to be powered off renewable energy sources, we expect that in a number of our different scenarios, you could need up to 50% more capacity within our overall grid. And that's where that number comes from. Now, interestingly, one of the things we looked at was, you know, if people can choose what time of the day they want to charge their vehicles. So let's say I want my vehicle to be charged before I leave for work at 8 a.m. And that vehicle can charge, you know, between 2 and 4 or 2 and 8 or whatever it needs to happen. That could make a really significant difference to the overall investment required into that grid. Because, of Mm. course, if we have everyone charging during peak time, that would make a very, very, very big difference in how much energy we need to provide. I don't know if it was that exact value, but that goes right back to the very first BZD report, the stationary energy report that said, not only can we convert all our stationary energy generation for our existing use, but we need to budget, I think, an extra 25% or something for this expected and necessary change to electric vehicles. And did you also consider having car batteries being fed back into the grid and supporting the grid? We did look at what's called vehicle to grid, and certainly it's definitely possible. One of the things that we have cautioned is that you need to make sure that the the way that that's done and the way that that's planned is in the best interest of the people that own the cars as well. So if you had the opportunity to sell your extra energy from your vehicle battery that you're not using at the moment back to the grid, could help the grid to cope during those peak periods where they might need that extra energy. But what you don't want to do is degrade your car battery um, so Mm. that you would need to replace it in a shorter period of time because of that use. So we need Mm. to really understand that. And there's a lot of work that's being done now around things like solid state batteries to try and understand exactly how could that happen in a way that wouldn't overly degrade the car's battery. There there are some very promising alternative technologies to the lithium ion. There are, If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Alison Stewart from Infrastructure Victoria about the latest report that was released in October about autonomous and electric vehicles in Victoria. So, Alison, can you outline some of the problems or risks that would occur if everybody switched to battery-powered electric vehicles today and what we need to do to avoid that? Certainly. So one of the things that we did flag up again in terms of the need for planning for this future is is to think through this as a system, right? So if everyone went out tomorrow and bought electric vehicles and plugged them into our current grid, that would, of course, be a much more significant draw on our energy system than we expect. 
if not everybody did it, but certain people in certain areas did it. So everyone in, you know, a wealthy area, a wealthy suburb of Melbourne um, were to go and plug in, then again, you might see that localized impact. So we really need to think through the overall impact. How are we going to do this from the energy grid's perspective? We also need to think about emissions, of course. So currently, of course, we have a lot of coal-fired power plants. And again, the assumption that we made going into this was that the vehicles were zero emissions from the source. That was the request that came to us from the government. And when you think about that, we, of course, don't want to just relocate emissions from Melbourne to the Latrobe Valley. We want to make sure that we're planning overall for that transition to happen in an orderly way, and that we're all planning for that together. So again, as I said earlier, really important for transport and energy to be talking to each other and to be planning in sync with how we think this is going to be taken up. Now, another one interesting factor that you presented was it would cost Victorians 40% less than they pay for cars today as compared to the cost of using a fully automated on-demand vehicle. Could you explain that? Sure. So in some of our scenarios, we had one scenario in which everyone owns their own private automated electric vehicle. And we had another scenario in which we looked at what if those vehicles were actually shared. So this is kind of an Uber style model where you would call up a vehicle to come to your house, it would pick you up and drop you off and then would go up and pick up another passenger. So we're not assuming that these vehicles that you would share a a trip or a ride with somebody else, but just that the vehicle itself would be multi-user effectively. In that scenario, we found that for most Victorians, uh, and most of us travel less than 15,000 kilometers per year, that it would actually be significantly cheaper to use that kind of a service. Now, we had certain assumptions in there, of course, about exactly how much it would cost, but those are consistent with current assumptions over how that commercial model is likely to evolve. So if you take into account, for example, a flagfall rate, a per minute and a per kilometer rate, which is currently how fares are calculated, that's the outcome that you get is that 40% benefit. We found the crossover point at which it would start to be more cost-effective to own your own vehicle in that automated electric future to be 43,000 kilometers. There's very few Victorians that travel that far. Mm. Now, you mentioned health before, and your recommendations said that there would be 27 million tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions removed, which has a saving of about 0.6 to $0.7 billion a year. That's right. That's amazing. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. So so the way that we calculated that, again, is um, depending on each scenario, we look at the future and say, if we were to remove all the vehicles that would otherwise be on the road, so we have our base case in 2046, which is we continue to drive our current vehicles. If we remove those vehicles and replace them with a fleet of electric vehicles, what would the impact be? And of course, in different scenarios, that's different because the number of vehicles that you need to service the population of Melbourne with a shared fleet is very different than if everyone has their own private automated vehicle. Uh, so those assumptions then go in there in terms of then understanding what the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions would be, and that's where we get our overall findings from. How do you evaluate the health side of it? So the common way of doing that is um, something called disability-adjusted life years, or da- DALIs, and um, <laughs> not to get too technical about it, but effectively you can equate the difference in, in the emissions and the impact that individuals have or the, the impact that those emissions have on people's quality of life and, and health um, in particular, of course, to that reduction in those emissions. And so when you translate that, you could actually, we could see a significant increase in the overall years that each of us have of healthy living as a result of getting rid of those emissions. So the other thing your report says, and we talked about the efficiency of the network being increased by 91%, but it also boosts the economic growth by $15 billion. Is that a year or is that 
2014 per year. Yeah. Again, that's quite amazing. How, how does that occur? So effectively, the way that we model that is through um, something called a computer-generated equilibrium model. Um, and or effectively, what we do... Poop. Or a CGE. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so we shock the system and we say, well, what would happen if actually the transport sector were to become less labor intensive and more capital intensive. So what if actually, rather than relying on people to do some of those jobs, we actually rely on automation to do those. And that then plays out through a number of other related sectors. And we say, what would the overall impact be on the economy? When you do CGU modeling, there are different shocks that have different impacts. And overall, when we modeled this one, it was quite clear that the overall benefit was um, was quite significant in terms of the overall growth of the economy, which is generally what you see when you move from a labour-intensive activity to a more capital-intensive activity. Alison, your report, and you've mentioned several times already, was, was brilliant in stressing the need to cover all the interrelated aspects of industry. We've covered some of them, but a couple that we haven't, ICT infrastructure and data and waste and monitoring co- and coordination. Can you just give us a couple of sentences on the effects on those and what needs to be considered? Sure. ICT is really critical in this as well, and that's the third area that we've identified that really needs significant investment going forward. Uh, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier about connectedness, that if we want to actually enable these vehicles to be able to be connected um, and we want to get those connectedness benefits, we do need to invest in making sure that that can happen. And so part of that... What does ICT stand for? Sorry. So Information and Communications Technologies. So these are things like mobile networks, um, in particular in regional and rural areas. If we want these vehicles to be able to communicate, we need to make sure that we have reliable coverage on our roads. Um, and that's not something that we currently have. We expect that to cover all M and A class roads in Victoria, um, that the impact uh, and the cost would be something in the order of about $1.2 to $1.7 billion. We can also extend that to cover all of our M through D class roads. And of course, the cost would be more significant, but overall, pretty compelling in terms of the, the investment and the benefit that you would get from that. There's also other ICT technology that we can talk about, which are things like enabling vehicle to infrastructure communication. So again, what I mentioned before about traffic lights being able to tell you that they're about to change mm. would be part of, of that kind of uh, upgrade that you would need to that infrastructure. So when you look then next into the other areas that we recommended, waste management is one that we need to consider. So we need to look at how changes in e-waste and changes in overall volumes of waste could make a difference in the future as a result of these types of vehicles. And we need to make sure that we're planning for that. Mm. Finally, on monitoring and coordination, or one aspect of that is that basically, you know, this industry is moving so quickly, we need to make sure that we stay on top of it. So we've made these recommendations, but we've also said that you need to revisit them. It's difficult to know exactly when some of these things need to be done at this stage of their development. So we've said, mm. we think this now, have a look again in one, two or five years and make sure that that's still the case. Yeah, that was a nice timeline. So I want to talk a little bit more about some of the benefits that moving in this direction will have for Victorians in the future. So your report found that the combination of improved efficiency could lower the costs to certain services such as public transport, healthcare, education, and jobs by between 7 and 32%. Can you tell us how this could bring wide-range social and economic benefits, including deeper labor markets, uh, greater employment, and educational opportunities to Victorians? Yeah, so we see this um, in the future of automated electric vehicles as being very interconnected. This is not just a road story. This is actually a whole transport story, and it's really important that public transport is also considered with this and the overall 
kind of multimodal opportunities that we see available from this space in the future. When you think about the changes in terms of how we could travel, how we want to be mobile in the future, you know, this technology is really a game changer in terms of that. So if we, you know, we, we can't yet predict exactly how things are going to change. But if we think, for example, about how the internet has changed the way that we interact with everything from goods and services to other people, we suspect that this could be in the same order of, of magnitude of change. And that's because, you know, goods can come to you independently. The time that's freed up for you to do different activities will be significant. Uh, and the way in which you do those activities might be very, very different. So what if you were to call up a hair salon automated vehicle to come to you, right? Or a gym, right? These are all concepts that are coming uh, into the fore. Of course, there's also a lot of companies like Amazon um, and food delivery companies that are looking into how they can leverage this kind of technology to bring goods in a more cost-effective way. So we think that the impacts could be huge mm. and wide-ranging of this technology going forward. Alison, we need an hour for this, and we've got about one and a half <laughs> minutes left. Um, I'm going to have to skip the section on myths that you covered. But most importantly, how readily do you think the government will take up these um, recommendations? We've had pretty good feedback from the government so far. Of course, you know, the way that we operate is we try to provide transparent and evidence-based recommendations to the government. How they choose to take that forward into policy is certainly what they are um, are working on. And we expect that at some point, probably mid-year, we'll have the response from government about how they're planning to pull this together. And I understand you're going to also be presenting at the Electric Vehicle Expo in March 16th this year. Yes, that's right. Looking forward to it, okay? Yeah, that should be fantastic. Again, because this is the sort of information that everybody needs to know to be able to plan for the future. We have found it is really important to talk to everybody across sectors and industries and trying to really just get this information out there. We know we haven't answered everything, but we know that hopefully we've set a foundation for some of the questions that do need to be built on in the future. And they just go to Infrastructure Victoria to check out the report? That's right. All of our reports are freely available to download there um, to the public. So by all means, please go to our website and feel free to download anything if you want to know more. Listeners, it is a, a 200-page-plus report, but it is so clearly written. You mm-hmm. can it's easily beautifully get the stuff you want. It's yeah. excellent. Really so well thank done you. again, Alison. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much, and thanks for coming in and explaining it to us. Thanks for having me. We've been talking to Dr. Alison Stewart from Infrastructure Victoria about planning for zero emissions and autonomous vehicles. If you want to find out more about the latest development in electric vehicles, come and join BZE in the Renew EV Expo at Port Melbourne on Saturday, March 16th. For further information, go to the website evexpo.org.au. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios at 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, go to the BCD website and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can help donate to cover your time costs, please go to the BCD website or Facebook page and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.